Hello and welcome once again to another episode of 177 Nations of Tasmania. For many of us, images of growing up on a tropical island in the South Pacific may look idyllic. But for Lonnie, who grew up on a small island in Samoa, day-to-day life was often not easy. Although being part of a strongly collective society means everyone supports each other, it also means everyone has their duties and responsibilities. And that's the way life often was in Samoa. Like many Samoans, Lonnie ended up migrating to New Zealand to find better work prospects and experienced significant culture shock. Eventually, she would try her luck in Sydney, an even bigger step, where she would eventually meet her now husband, Peter, who you will also hear in this episode. How they met and uh, what she experienced in Tasmania in the early 90s when she first started living here, I'll let Lonnie tell you for herself. What was the environment that you grew up in? What was it like? Hard as as a child um, because everything, it's, it's a collective community where every person, apart from the grandparents because they couldn't work, but right down to like four or five-year-olds has a role in the family. Okay. <laughs> sort of feel like it, pick up the rubbish or collect coconuts and stuff like that. But growing up as a, a child, probably I was lazy and I thought, this is really hard work. And it, well, life was hard. Mm-hmm. We've gone through, um, you know, times where there was a famine and the food was the food on the ground was not enough to to feed the family. And we used to make bread, get flour. If we can get flour, we'd make the um, the dough, make it out of the coconut coconut cream and flour. And we the the older generations like my generations but my cousins older than used to to do that cooking and and then we'd store them to to make things last because this is not just a nuclear family it's the whole mm. extended family it's the grandparents the aunties and uncles and families living together education the education was good but I found that when I got to high school and finished high school because I got to high school got to form the fifth form which is probably the equivalent of but it'll be the equivalent of year 10 here and my grandfather was very ill at the time because I grew up with my grandparents most of the time and my grandma had passed but my grandfather was still around but he was very ill at the time so I decided to not go to school anymore but to stay home and, and help with looking mm-hmm. after him and when he passed I went to RPO and lived there for 12 months to try and find work and that was hard I didn't find work particularly with not have I, I sat the national the school national school certificate and passed but you know it was that wasn't enough to to get a job so it was very hard and so uh, from what I have read about Samoan culture, the, the family is very important and yeah. it's the extended family as well. It's a collective culture. Yes, the family is certainly the main feature of any extent of, you know, of any uh, communities in, in Samoa's village life. Do you have to consult the family when you make certain decisions uh, in your life? As a child, no. <laughs> the family pretty much decide yeah. everything. Say, well, in the in the Samoan culture, we have a tiered culture, um, very hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the decisions in the family are made by the the matais, the chiefs, 
um, and the chiefs in those days were mainly the men, but the grandparents in the family are very important. So even though that, you know, you have the matais, the, the consultation between my parents and, you know, my aunties and uncles are always, um, you know, their decisions are always, or the advice always comes from the grandparents. My grandfather, who was a patriotic of the family, and my grandmother as well. So the Matais, they would meet and make the decisions, any decisions about the family, whether, you know, the division of land for people to, to live and to work and, and earn to live on. Anything really concerning the well-being of the family um, is made by, the decisions are made by the Matai. And of course, behind every, you know, man is a very strong woman who mm -hmm. supports and you know, advice and on those decisions, but ultimately, and the children have no say in anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like sometimes it's um, what is it seen and not heard? Yeah. Um. You know. Yeah. We just do as we were told. The children, even when they are married and have children of their own, because they always seem to congregate in the families, depending on where they would live. You know, the decisions. Are still made by, by the, the chiefs. My parents can raise their children. They worked really hard to put them through education, um, and that that was through raising money from the land. But everyone would have a say in kind of like how the children are brought up. So you're expected. The expectations are that you know your children should be brought up in a certain way, um, you know, the Samoan cultural societal norms is that you you work, mm -hmm. <laughs> you go to school, you go to church. Uh, Sunday schools is a huge thing. Mm -hmm. Growing up um, in the evenings on Sundays is kind of like, it's a rest day. The only thing that we're allowed to is after lunch that we could play volleyball or netball. And at times, swimming was banned on Sundays. So, and swimming in the ocean, the sea. And when we are caught swimming, we go to everyone um, congregates, all the children older to the young young ones in the village would go to the church minister's house, the church minister's house, and we would go there um, to the, the prayers and the singing for the, that's that's the routine and that's what we were expected to do. And if someone, and then they would have like leaders, young people who, you know, go out like police and report to, to the church minister, who was a very scary man. <laughs> um, he was big, bald-headed, <laughs> and very... Make him sound like a, a nightclub bouncer or something. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it was a bit like that. But, he, yeah, so if anyone was caught swimming, he would have this long, what do you call them, and say, we got caned if we... It swam on Sundays and got caught. Yeah, right. It's very strict. It's very strict. Mm. And that's another part of the culture and growing up as a child. It was a very strict culture and like beatings and stuff was like the norm. We um, caught a lot of beatings over the years as a child from my mum and dad. My grandparents were really good. And because the grandfather was blind and couldn't catch it. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> 
<laughs> so you got, you got off a bit lightly there. She deserved it then. <laughs> but very strict. And at schools, in even schools, that was another beating that you got from the teachers at schools when you were young. <laughs> you, get beat, you get beatings from everyone, like the, the church minister, the schools and <laughs> your bigger cousins. <laughs> wow. One of the um, stereotypes I've heard of it is that a lot of Samoan and other Islander boys, even though they might be really big and scary, they're all scared of their mums. That's that's true. <laughs> With my mum, my mum was very tough. So my parents, um, my dad was a very placid man. He was mm-hmm. kind and, you know, it was very easy to get along with. But my mum was very strict, very, very strict. I have to run really fast. <laughs> so, <laughs> it doesn't matter where you where you run, how far you go, the, the, the stones or the little rocks always gets you. <laughs> One of the challenges in my mind with the Samoan society is, has always been that it's, it's a society in which it's an adult-driven society. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I've never quite understood when a child ceases to be a child and becomes an adult and actually can join in with that. Uh, that particular society and I've seen examples where some quite elderly young children are still treated quite harshly because they're still being mm. considered children as opposed to adult which Lon's already referred to. And one, one of the, the other thing too in our culture is that when we sit down for a meal there's the extended family so all the adults the, the parents will sit down the kids eat last and they eat whatever is okay. left <laughs> of the meal but we have one we have one day which is called the White Sunday. That's a really good day because all the children sit on the on the Sunday. We go to church, we do the things that we do at church, and then we come home. There's a huge feast where all the kids sit down and the all the adults serves them. So kind of oh, like right. the adults become the slaves, <laughs> the kids slaves for one the day. Kids have, the kids have a day off. <laughs> And so what, what sort of um, activities would be common to do for children in Samoa? If you, did you have time to sort of do fun stuff in between? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we did sometimes. The, kind of like the daily routine was in the morning, you get up really early in the morning, you go fetch water because at that time um, we didn't have the running water in the villages. Okay. We had um, a few wells in the middle of the village and there's another couple or just quiet inland so that our routine in the morning is you get up you go fetch the water for the the older cousins to 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 the cooking for that day and we go to school we start at eight o'clock there's no breakfast um you can just take um you know if there was coconuts and stuff that was good (laughs) and so the school went from eight to one o'clock we come home and there will be if you're lucky some food from the adult meals from 10 o'clock in the morning, at 10 o'clock in the morning. So we come home, we have something to eat, and then we go off, collect coconuts, fetch more water, get firewood, ride to like when it's just before dark. And then the older cousins would do the cooking and stuff. Nighttime was interesting because the moon was out every, you know, the whole village you know like lit up and so the kids the kids would have like a, a bit of playtime after the meal which is just after dark and then they walk up and then we'll go out and mix and play 
hide and seek and um, catch up with friends. Um, oh, there was fun. There was fun. So the school in those days, we used to have, we go to school and then we get handed toothbrushes and toothpaste. So we brush mm-hmm. our teeth in the morning. And also they used to have the milk biscuits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have different flavours like there was chocolate, there was banana and vanilla because we didn't have milk. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were worried, you know, the calcium intake yeah, and stuff right. like that. So they have supplies of that they would deliver to the to the schools in the villages um, to distribute. And that's what that was uh, one of the routines. That was one of the exciting things. Is at lunchtime you get milk biscuits. <laughs> You'd line up <laughs> for for um, when the bell goes to get those biscuits, and they were quite nice at the time. Before we were born, uh, my dad was a policeman mm-hmm. and my mum was uh, attended um, teachers college, but she didn't finish because she caught out, she got kicked out. Oh, really? <laughs> she, my mum, my mum was a very tough lady. Okay. And she, she fought with the men, not the women. Oh, right. <laughs> my grandparents had initially moved from the village on the island where we are, which is called Sabai, um, to the main island, which is a bit smaller, but that's where the capital city is. That, mm-hmm. That's where all the services and, and the stuff were. So they moved there to give their children um, and to have access to education. And that, But eventually my grandparents moved back to our village um, when the kids were older. And my mum and dad then met and my dad then finished in the police force and moved to the village. So they became they became planters. They worked on a plantation. So the plantation um, is it's taro, it's um, okay. bananas and cocoa and oranges and stuff. That was how they put us through school. In the villages, um, each family had their own parcel of land. And some, some families have got larger lands, like my mum's family and my dad's family had as well in, a different, in another village. But each family would have their own parcel of lands and so the Matais, the chiefs, you know, talk and make decisions and then allocate for each piece of land to be given to a couple and their children. And so our land in, on my mum's family was all divvied up by my grandparents. But of course you have to kind of like make sure that everyone was okay with it. Yeah, so that was how, so they got their own parcel land and that's how they live. They do the plantations, they grow. It's still the way it happens too. Customary land is managed by the Matais, and so you have use of the land, but the broader family may at some stage step in and decide, you know, who might have that home, you know. Okay, so the crops that you, that's grown on that land, is the, are they just for the, for the family or is it for, um, is that they use it to make money, I guess? Um, it's for the families and they use it to make money as well. For example, so my parents, have we were given this land on the main road so, and that was where they worked so they for the oranges and the mandarins they take to the market and that's for just purely us mm-hmm. our my parents and my siblings because they have to put us through school they have to pay for education and and to care for us and you know living and stuff 
So the stuff, the cocoa are taken to the shops um, and they used to have, so you used to get it, the cocoa slats, but I forgot in growing up <laughs> as a child as well, a lot of work in the plantation collecting coconuts. We then, um, you know, husk them and get them out and the next door neighbours had a huge kind of like a oven mm-hmm. and that's used for drying the cocos and uh-huh. the, the cocoa okay. beans and the coconuts. And then you put them in huge sacks and then you take them to two villages down where the guy had a, a the family had a, a big shop where they would take them, they weigh them, um, and then they give you the money. There's eight of us and that was how my mum and dad um, put us through school. Uh, so that would that would have been a lot of coconuts, I imagine. A lot of coconuts, a lot of coconuts, a lot of mandarins, <laughs> a lot of oranges, a lot of taro. <laughs> Christmas celebrations used to be, you know, that was the highlight. Mm-hmm. Um, the church singings and stuff it was really quite cool in those days because when we were young, um, Christmas and my grandparents were alive. So everyone comes home for Christmas. My aunties lived in other villages and, you know, stuff like that. And the cousins who have left home and, and come to, uh, lived in New Zealand and Australia. So Christmas times, the times that they all come home or most of them from overseas come home and we have this huge family gathering for like that goes for like two weeks three weeks depending on how long the people from overseas stays but it was there were great times because we don't usually see each other throughout the whole year and some people who have come overseas we don't see them often you know sometimes or me some come home for christmas but great feasts <laughs> celebrations and we get toys so this this is the exciting bit so when people come from overseas they would bring like balloons and mm-hmm. <laughs> beach balls and um you know those hard dolls so if you're lucky if you get a, a okay. hard doll <laughs> that was the presents for christmas we don't have trees yeah um, I, was, I was thinking that would look a bit strange in somewhere like Samoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, are there any um Christmas traditions that are peculiar or particular to Samoa? Yes, the church celebrations, say the nighttime service, that's a really important church service. Even though Christmas is a time for family gatherings, it's also very much around the church. Mm -hmm. So we'd go to a church on Christmas Eve and then Christmas Day, um, I think we'd do another church service. And everyone's expected to go to church. Like particularly when you're a child, you mm-hmm. you are expected to go to church. And one of the my favourite things when I was little at Christmas time is that they used to have from um, other villages. They would have a busload of people, and they would come and to, so they would walk from one side of the village to down the other end and um, singing songs. Uh-huh. And we we'd have like if it's a youth group or a, a choir church choir they do that often and sometimes they would stop in front of a family and they would sing and then the family kind of like have to give them some like presents or money singing seems to be a quite important part of the the culture in Samoa and some of the other islands as well it is it's a huge part of our culture church choirs church singings and also when they have activities where you know because they they have a women's committee um and then they would have youth um yes a little bit you know is singing 
and even when we just get together for a barbecue even here so people will get together sit around and to the, the men someone will play the guitar and tease the mm. that's the because Samoa became independent and so of course that made just like that free traveling between New Zealand and Samoa mm -hmm. as a bit hard. So at the time the program that was happening is that when you have if you have a, a family member in New Zealand they can get you a work permit then that would automatically if you're lucky enough to get one you automatically become when you arrived in New Zealand become a permanent um, residence okay and that was how I got to New Zealand so one day my dad came from Savai and he said that um, my sister had been in contact with my eldest sister who lived in New Zealand at the time had been in contact with them and that she'd found uh, she where she worked she got a work permit um, and that she wanted me to come over. At the time, it was hard and I thought, mm, I don't really, because I wanted to go back to Savai to help mum and dad um, look after the younger kids and work on the land. But I wasn't a very good worker on the land. <laughs> it was just too hard. And I, <laughs> I remember um, when I was living in Apia just before dad came, I used to do the washing at the tap outside and I used to do the washing and I used to daydream <laughs> that I was on a plane going to New Zealand okay. like say goodbye to them. <laughs> like washing. But I eventually decided that I was going to go. So, um, so then I was on the plane in July going to Christchurch. So my sister was working in a shoe factory in uh -huh. Christchurch. Um, so when I arrived in Christchurch, that's where I worked with her. The, the climate was a, a huge shock, you know, because I've never, well, I've never seen snow, never seen, mm. never, but summer was always warm. But I remember arriving in Christchurch and it was so, it was freezing, freezing cold. I'd wore layers and layers of clothes and with a coat on and had a heater on running in my room the whole the whole night, which my sister wasn't very impressed <laughs> wasn't very impressed with. So apart from adjusting to the cold, how easy was it to adjust to sort of a new life in Christchurch? Not very easy. Mm -hmm. So the language uh, was hard because even though we learned English at home we don't use it at home mm -hmm. and so when I got to New Zealand and started work straight away it took a long time for me to come like I had to listen really hard and people talk really really fast so listen very hard and I think a lot of it was perceiving the the information is coming through in a different language mm -hmm. um, and not only that but comprehending it and often I didn't get it right like one day I went to with a, a friend to the shop tr tr stopped at the shop after work because my sister didn't work on that day and um, she was going to hardware shop and I thought <laughs> I thought she said that we were going to stop and get some food and we got there and I thought oh okay <laughs> looked around from the shop and I'm going where's the food <laughs> so she explained to me afterwards that we were going to the hardware shop we don't sell food there they don't sell food there uh -huh. we you know she was looking for some stuff for home 
yeah, it was it was hard. The, the language was hard. The food was hard because I they didn't have a lot of salmon food in Christchurch mm-hmm. at the time. So it's like potato, potatoes, um, things like yogurt and cheese. Never had them in my whole life. Mm. And even the things like bananas and oranges, the things that we have at home taste is so different. Um, it wasn't because they were... They weren't ripening on the tree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they weren't. They wouldn't have been fresh like yeah. they used to. Yeah, yeah. So the taste was very, very different, and the culture was, you know, at home everything was open, and it was a, like you could go next door and you know get something that they feed you or stuff, and everything was so open. And then you get to New Zealand, where where my sister had was a housing public housing mm-hmm. where they lived was one two three four units and then it was a huge fence around you you couldn't see out that was a huge shock it was just it was very it was very lonely it was i missed i was so homesick and you didn't see a lot of people at all to start with because it, i got there and basically the following week i started work and didn't see a lot of don't see a lot of people except when you got, went to work mm. you come home it was just my sister and her husband and my nephew um i was there from i think 83 to 89 so i started working in the shoe factory when i got there and i got sick of cluing shoe heels together <laughs> <laughs> Cost second work in the factory, and then I took myself to do some courses at TAFE, and I applied for a job for at um, the United Building Society, which, and then I just struggled through the language and that which I got better at and other things. It's just purely determination that I wanted to explore and do more, um, and then I ended up applying for the territorial force which they they called it and yeah it was that was very exciting it was very hard when i first joined the army um, and my very first weekend we went on a um a weekend exercise in karekipa it was a snow mountain and um i couldn't do sit-ups or push-ups because exercises was like <laughs> going to the gym was yeah no we didn't our exercise was running around collecting coconuts and in, in the field and stuff like that so yeah i applied for the force and i well i didn't get through straight away because the when i first applied i i went for the interview and um i was telling him every, the, the 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 sergeant everything that he didn't want to hear <laughs> like i he asked questions and i said things like i said i don't like being told what to do <laughs> <laughs> i don't like people screaming <laughs> i don't like people screaming at me um so he said at the end of the interview okay well we didn't get on so well today <laughs> Maybe have another think about 12 months' time and then come back. And that's what I did. So when I went back, I can't fly. He was basically asking the same questions, but I changed all the answers. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, I got in. After two years, because he can apply for citizenship, because I'd already had the permanent residence, I got my New Zealand citizenship and I thought, yeah, I'm free. I can go anywhere. Again, it was that 
determination and wanting to be independent because in our culture we go to other places where um, families are because you go and stay with families whereas I yeah I just said to my sister I'm going to Australia and I'm <laughs> I didn't have anyone any yeah. family didn't, okay. well we had families there but didn't know anybody what was the plan when you got to Sydney <laughs> Was there one? <laughs> didn't, didn't have much plan. <laughs> the thoughts are I, I'd go to Sydney and find work and just keep working because I wanted to go to America because my friends that we worked at Uniting um, Pin Society, they were coming, they were doing the same thing, just coming to Australia and working here and then keep travelling to America. So I thought, um, yeah, I might do that. Um, and then I got to Sydney and I got, stopped so I, I found work it was a very easy it was easy to find work in sydney when i got there so lonnie what what brought you to tasmania so what were the circumstances my husband <laughs> yes yeah, so how did you meet we had a blind date didn't we mm. <laughs> blind date so what what how did that happen like what uh, through a dating agency. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's the the old days. Yeah, yeah. The, the the old days where you go in there and put your name down, register to meet someone, and that was how it it came about. And how long had you been living in Sydney before that? We met in nineteen ninety, didn't we? I think so. Yes. So it only like maybe six months and so do you do you remember what that uh first blind date was like i do <laughs> <laughs> we went to a restaurant i think in Parramatta or somewhere like that yeah um lonnie ordered seafood including prawns i made some sort of comment that she'd probably every bit of it and she proceeded <laughs> to put the prawn and shell and legs in her mouth and chew on it just to make the point she didn't swallow it <laughs> that would have made it quite an impression i guess Yes. What about you, Lonnie? What do you remember about it? It was a bit awkward because I usually haven't hadn't done or that kind of thing before, and so yeah. But it was we had a good night though. We the conversation fairly flowing. The food was really good, seafood. <laughs> yeah, that that's our major uh, staple at home is seafood. And so, how how long before you sort of got to the point where? You want to make it permanent. So we, following that, had a few dates and then we stopped kind of like for some time. And then one day I was working at, I was working late at night and I thought I really can't be bothered catching the train. <laughs> so I thought I'll just ring Peter to see what he's doing, okay. to see if he could pick me up. And he did. <laughs> and then we started again. And then, then you knew it was sort of... Yeah, we continued dating for quite some time. Well, not really, not too long. Um, I was an old fellow. I was already nearly 40. Um, I had a couple of goals in mind. I wanted to find a woman taller than me so my children would have a chance. <laughs> okay. Secondly, I wanted to find a woman who was younger than me so she would look after me in my old age. Okay. Um, I think I failed on both accounts. <laughs> Oh, excuse me. <laughs> but um, at least we had two girls and they're both taller than I. Okay. Know, both content with the height, so I achieved one goal. <laughs> but, but by August 1991, we wed. Yeah, so it really, really didn't take too long to make that decision. 
um, we probably both needed it in our lives at that stage. You know how mm -hmm. sometimes you're looking, yep. you decide that your life is not quite complete. Um, and, and now 30-odd 30, 30 years later, we're still here and, and don't too regularly kill each other or anything. <laughs> so when did you move to Tasmania? We came down in January 92. Okay. Because just so was it three months before the wedding, um, Peter got a posting to Tassie to help out because he was in the army. Um, yeah, and we came down and that's where we stayed, or we stayed here, and all his families um, live here. And what were your uh, first impressions of Tasmania? It was very kind of like very much like a white society. That you know, when we came down, I was very. Um, weary of people looking at me sometimes because we when we came down here I didn't see felt very isolated mm -hmm. and I didn't see many colored people on, on this side of the of Hobart and yeah so it was kind of like when you go to the shopping centers like Eastlands and stuff like people kind of stare at you mm -hmm. and you see it kept me really upset because <laughs> I you know and sometimes in shops services and stuff like that so i always think why you know you'd be standing on a queue and you know some of the other people come and they immediately pay attention to them or ask them if they needed help and i'd be standing there going uh, okay mm. <laughs> so it was that type of thing that really that used to upset me Mm -hmm. uh, when I first came down here and I didn't look like people looking at me like I'm some sort of alien from, <laughs> <laughs> from outer space. <laughs> yeah, I guess that would also depend very much on what area of Hobart you were in because mm. like probably Sandy Bay, you'd be a bit more, yeah. fit in a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, I, I think for um, Tasmanians 30 years ago, to see people of other um, of the race was a curiosity as much as anything else. Yeah, and so a lot mm. of people might look because you know I haven't seen this before. And I recall, for instance, when I went to high school here, um, we had one non-European uh, person at that school, and that was Richard, or two, <coughs> Richard and Catherine Chung. So in eight hundred students, there were two Chinese students. That was in, in total. So they were. A curiosity too. Not you didn't go out of your way to discriminate against them, but they were curiosity. But have you found that? I guess have you found that that has changed over the time that you've been here? Oh, it has. It it significantly. One of the things that I used to, when I first came down here and had that feeling of you know, isolation. When I go to shops or I go out to town or stuff like that, I'm always looking out to see if I can if, if I can see someone, you know, with brown coloured skin or so and I get very excited when I see people of different culture, different colour here. Things have changed over time. I mean one of the things that was when my children went to school, they went to Cambridge Primary School down here. I was actually not surprised, but I knew that, that because when I went to the hospital or the local um, medical clinic when the girls were babies and have to do that check, 
um, someone got me, put me in touch with um, the Cook Islander lady and I rang her and made that connection and found out that her children goes down here as well. The children were a bit older than our girls. And then over time, you know, a lot of the refugees were resettled down here and I had the opportunity to work as a volunteer with the Catholic Care in the multicultural program where the, the refugees were resettled down here. That was, a, um, you know, a really good feeling of, you know, knowing that yeah, there's lots of people coming to Tasmania um, of different colours and stuff and you know, different cultures. It was just an exciting time. You can't worry um, about it too much now because your two no. granddaughters are little whiteies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but definitely things have changed and attitude um, as well have changed. There's certainly a lot of compassion with, you know, the locals about people resettling down here. And, you know, um, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it, I don't give it a second thought or I'm, I don't get upset when people look at me. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm not the only different colour person yeah. down here. So make make life a lot easier. Funny thing though, because when I met Peter, I didn't know that Tasmania existed, <laughs> or didn't know where it. Yeah, and, and so what did you what did you do when you first arrived here? Were you also did you also come here and work? Just got pregnant. Basically. Okay. So I got pregnant the first or when we first year we moved down, um, and then subsequently had another child, had my second our second child. But I did family daycare because when I came down, it was even worse than going to Sydney because I didn't have anyone mm. here, any family, sort of, and it was very isolating, um, very homesick. So I took up family daycare while the kids were little. And then when they started going to school full-time, I enrolled in a Diploma of Community Services at Tate. Um, so after family daycare, the kids were older, still at school I worked at child protection as a support worker um, I worked there for eight years and did different roles the, the good thing about that was working casually because we always make sure that one of us is home for for the kids so I worked only in you know school times So what would you say would have been the biggest challenge that you found trying to settle in Tasmania, especially at the beginning, I guess? I think it would be, again, um, culture shock and isolation. Mm -hmm. uh, because in it, it, things were very different in Sydney, like Sydney and Melbourne. Sydney was a big city and there's a huge, you know, Pacific Island community yeah. there, but some, just the Samoan community in itself, it's huge. And yeah, down here, when we first came, came down, the biggest challenge was missing my family, yeah. It was probably missing your family, but also learning to live with the people down here, this new family that you had married in. Yeah. Learning to live with me and my expectations. <laughs> that, was a, yeah. that was a huge, yeah. Mum died 14 days after our first child was born. Oh, wow. That's a pretty big yeah. deal. And yeah. so, Lon desperately, and I didn't appreciate this until years, years later, wanted to get home. Yeah. And I said, Jess is two weeks old. You can't take Jess back at this stage. Mm. She's going to be very vulnerable and all the rest. 
and so long agreed, but it probably wasn't until years later I realised that the sacrifices that were, that was required of her mm. to do that. We went back 12 months after that, and Jess yeah. was then 12 months older, and I was comfortable with that, but I was unaware of it. It was, it's common sense to me, you can't go back, your child is 12 weeks, two weeks old, you can't take her back into this foreign environment and all the rest. There you go. That was those sorts of issues. Yeah. Yeah. Especially after what my, you've talked about with the closeness of families. And, yeah. And yeah. The, my sisters helped. Well, my sisters also suggested that because was it 19, 1989 or 1990, 1991? There were two um, hurricanes in Samoa where mm. devastations like some villages our village pretty much in the in the in the on along the coast was wiped out um and so there were my sisters also were concerned that jess was very vulnerable and too 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 little to to be taken into because mm. a, a lot of I, I don't think people haven't fully recovered and you know so there were issues about toilets sanitaries and you know health but it was yeah that was a very that was a very trying, mm. trying time for me. Yeah. It just made sense to me. Common sense, you can't do that. Yeah. It was, yeah. And I think that was another, a huge challenge marrying into a, a Palangi family because I've not had, yes, I had Palangi friends, but I've not lived with a Palangi mm. family. Um, and a lot of, a lot of the stress I experienced at the time was always worrying about the expectations of the family and how people would see me and, you know, what they think of me, if they are going to accept me into the family, you know, those sorts of things. And then coupled with, you know, with that my mum leaving because, you know, yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, and then the struggles that followed after mum passing away was I could always see mum with my kids. Yeah. Um, cause my, it, it, that was a, a huge thing was that she didn't get to see my kids. She didn't get to see Jess. Um, because the, the conversation that I had, sorry, the conversation that I had with mum was two weeks after Jess was born and just managed because we sent a telegram in those days. We mm. didn't have phones or anything because they have to travel to the post office to call us. But when we um, when we finally spoke on that phone that night, I had, um, so I got just in the basket, just sitting on the, the bench and I was trying to make her awake or make noises so mum could hear mm -hmm. and yeah and and just yeah she did but um immediately after the phone call um mum had um this because she has has some um, high blood pressure yeah so she yeah she had a, a stroke um I was taken to the hospital, but she didn't make it to the hospital. Mm. So that was a, the biggest, biggest, another, what was a huge challenge. Yeah. Uh, it was always, every time I picked Jess up or just 
cry at seeing mum's face become like you know picking her up because even though mum was tough she was you know she loved our the grandchildren that she got to know and and seen and had the opportunity to to um yeah to be with them spend mm. time with them that was what she was like a lot of um, a lot of challenges but i think the the cultural differences between mm. you know our families was a, a huge challenge for me as well well mom didn't communicate that particularly well she soldiered on it wasn't obvious to me it was you know you're, you might be like me things are common sense you, you know, <laughs> it's common sense uh, and it's only in hindsight that I'm more aware of the yeah. challenges that Lon had when she first arrived I thought everything's fine you know stuff like this but there you go but that was really tough it was a really really tough thing she spoke to her mother put Jess on the line had a call about three or four hours later from Samoa to say your mother has passed away mm. the same night. Oh, no.